Welcome to our Zoom Bible study here at St. Anne's. We are entering into chapter nine of the book of Acts. And again, we have quite a bit to uh, go through here with, oh, I'm scrolling way too fast here with uh, chapter nine. <laughs> Uh, so I'd like us to go ahead and um, dive in. Who would like to read the first 19 verses? No, let's just do the first nine verses. Just kidding. <laughs> I'll volunteer. There you go. Thank you. All right. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I love it. Uh, I don't think I've ever tried to talk muted before. And Zoom said, hey, did you realize you were muted? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so right. having to do that. <laughs> I received some enlightenment from the device. Um, <laughs> last week, we discussed uh, the beginning of the spread of the church from Jerusalem to the outer regions. And so we encountered... Um, the preaching of the gospel in Samaria, where we had Simon Magus. Uh, and then we have later, we have Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, as we see, um, as we're talking about juxtaposing um, the Ethiopian eunuch with Simon. Uh, and then and we can see, right, Philip is moving further and further away as Saul, who's the kind of one who stirs things up in Jerusalem, is spreading Christians everywhere. So when we get to chapter nine, uh, Saul is still in his uh, let's persecute all the Christians mode. Uh, and he asked for uh, letters because my guess is he needed permission to go somewhere else because he's going to really stir things up. So he needs to at least show that he has authority from on high um, cause now he's going to go to Damascus because obviously word has spread that Christianity is now in Damascus. So, uh, as Christianity spreads, so does the persecution. And what do you all make of, and I, I think this is the place in scripture. There's not something that's ringing a bell for me in my, my memory. And maybe somebody else can point to. Uh, another spot where Christianity here is called the way. I was about to jump on that one, Father. Please. The Didache. Ah, yes. So what is the Didache, Jim, since you bring up the Didache? <laughs> it is one of the earliest fragments that we have outside the Bible of Christian instruction. Uh, and if I remember the beginning and it sums up again at the end, doesn't it? That there are two ways. There's the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. Yes. Um, so that would have been a, a phrase around about uh, this time that was in use uh, that we may not see it as much in scripture, but we do have something from that time. Um, it had instructions about how to do baptism, um, had instructions about telling true from false prophets, um, that's real that section is really interesting yes yeah um, a lot of just practical it reads like the book of james stuff. in a lot it, of ways it does and it's also you can tell that it's addressing there were some issues and problems that had come up and sort of a here's a 
here's an FAQ on how to handle some of these issues. The, right. It's, ideally, it's, baptism is supposed to be in cold running water. Right. But if you can't get that, then you can use um, still water and and so on. It goes into so, the, the best way and then what's acceptable. What's fascinating about that as you're sharing that, and this this is one of my little things that I probably repeat a lot, but here you go. Uh, <laughs> that kind of literature is what you would call, we're used to we're talking about like canons in the Orthodox Church. Mm. We're typically talking about, you know, like the canons that were passed uh, at Nicaea or some of the ecumenical councils. But that that's if you are initiated into Orthodoxy and are thinking about a light just came on above me. So I should keep talking about canonical literature. Uh, by <laughs> canonical literature, I don't mean like the New Testament or the Old Testament. Uh, what I mean uh, by canonical literature is exactly kind of that information that uh, Jim was talking about in the Didache, which is if you're going to baptize somebody, it should be in running clean water. If you don't have that, do this. You're probably familiar, more familiar with that kind of literature from like First and Second Timothy, Titus, those kind of where it's talking about some practical things about how to organize the church, who would qualify for certain, you know, offices within the church, uh, et cetera. Um, but th all of that kind of literature um, is very early in Christianity because very early you see that the church, as we've talked about with the book of Acts, in the book of Acts kind of being history, you kind of get a little window into that, the need for, the right ordering of the way of how things are supposed to be done. But in those later uh, epistles, um, the Catholic epistles or the uh, pastoral epistles, uh, you can see there the, there's all sorts of questions that come up. <laughs> how do we do this if we don't have X, Y, or Z? So um, this is one of those things for me when folks are trying to wrap their minds around that the church uh, has been, or it's not like a fourth or fifth century thing. Once that we get thoroughly Romanized, do we suddenly need rules about who can become clergy or that kind of stuff? That that kind of literature goes back very early in Christianity, and I would say even kind of back in, to Judaism. We just don't usually read a lot of those texts. So the other thing about um, the Didache and that kind of uh literature it's also it's kind of not just practical but it's also a kind of wisdom literature uh, this is how a right way to live if such and such happens uh this is what you should do um that i think when we start talking about christianity as the way um we're all kind of used to saying christianity especially for orthodox christianity isn't just about a bunch of information it's a whole way of life right um, we're used to that within orthodoxy, but I, I think there's something here that they mean something a little bit more than like we have a liturgical calendar or um, we fast. Uh, I think there is the way is kind of an encompassing way uh, to describe how Christianity is also starting to differentiate itself from the synagogues. Uh, that there is a particular way that Christians are supposed to act and live that acts as kind of mapping for us. But um, I think it's also, we as we see Christianity moving outwards, they have to, and they're explaining it. I mean, we probably do this all the time, right? You encounter somebody who wants to know something about Christianity or orthodoxy. They don't know anything. So you are struggling to find ways to describe it. So yeah, maybe we're like Catholicism, but except you know, da, 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 da. Uh, yes, we believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. Uh, yes, we believe in the Trinity. Uh, the creeds. Yes, we are Christian. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I'm, I've had all these questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you believe in Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that Christianity <laughs> as being described as the way uh, I think is the early church trying to describe some uh, way of explaining Christianity as differentiate, starting to differentiate themselves from Judaism. The beginning of Acts, right? We saw that there was, mm, they're still going to the temple and all these things. It's all kind of not clear yet exactly how this is all going to shuffle out. Our, obviously they're declaring Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
Yeah. Um, but we do not have like an Hagia Sophia or something, <laughs> or you know, like the Holy Sepulchre. We don't. We don't have these. Uh, so things are still kind of inchoate and, and developing. Um, does anyone else have any comments or questions about the way? I was just looking it up. <clears throat> pardon me, the Didache. And it, it does contrast. So it starts out with there are two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death. And so presenting the Christian faith as the way of life. But um, also in, in the wisdom and the uh, rules given, the Didache uh, gives Wednesday and Friday as fasting days. It does it give the reason why? uh i'm looking unfortunately i'm reading an article about oh yes yeah it does why? i remember tuesdays and thursdays were fasting days in judaism and so christians fasted on wednesdays and fridays and it gives the reason we don't because i if it's not the didache it's another thing later in canonical literature that will say we don't fast on those days because of the pharisees do not like right. your fast it, it, be it with uh, hypocrites say that again erica I, but let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but do ye fast on the fourth day and the preparation for Friday. Uh, so you can see the conflict uh, in early yep. Judea, uh, Judaism and Christianity, the hypocrites. Yeah. Uh, so there that is. So in, um, if you've ever, uh, it's Candide, uh, Voltaire's. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I believe it's in the novel. I know it's in the in the musical. Um, but one of the characters uh, falls into a, a life of uh, a courtesan, and she's giving herself to a Catholic priest and also to a rabbi. Uh, but the Catholic priest has her on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays, and the rabbi has her on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. So he's very much making the point they're absolutely violating their fasts. Yeah. Uh, that they're both hypocrites. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they're violating their fast in other ways. <laughs> right, exactly. But, <laughs> but definitively like, doing it on days that are supposed right, to be Right, like, supposed to be like, their especially their holy days. Exactly, uh, exactly. So, uh, in verse... If I may? Do you want to... Go ahead, David, on the way. Yeah, just, just, just real briefly. Uh, and I'm a... I'm in uh, uh, a couple of 12-step groups, and, and, and I sponsor people. And this is the big breakthrough is to get people to understand that you don't do the 12 steps and graduate. The 12 steps are not rules, mm. okay? That the 12 steps are a way of life. You live them on a daily basis. Yeah. And that resonates that, of course, this all grew out of, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, originally AA was going to be called the Book of St. James. Uh, and, really? And, yeah. Yeah. I didn't it was know gonna, that. Yeah, it was going to be called the, uh, uh, it was going to be the, the St. James Society or something. It was named after the book. It was going to be named after the Book of St. James because they all love the Book of St. James. And if you read St. James, it's all program. Or if you read the program, it's all St. James, depending on how you look at it. But any of it. <laughs> to me, the phrase, the way, is terribly, terribly, terribly important. Uh, and and it, it distinguishes what I consider to be the authentic Christian life, at least the Christian life that I am trying so hard to live and consistently failing at which is why i got to pray my ass off but but the the, the, the that it distinguishes it distinguishes the kind of christian life i'm trying to live from the 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 christianity of, some, of so many other people i know the christianity of some of the many other people i know consists of just you know you go to church on sunday or or maybe you go to church two or three times a week and, and you, you think got good thoughts about jesus Huh? And you think good thoughts about Jesus, and that's about it. Well, no, you got your rules. You know, <laughs> you're not supposed to cuss, and you're not supposed to commit adultery. You're not supposed to steal. You're not supposed to. But it's not a way of life. It is not a way. Of, it's not a way of thinking. 
It's not a way of decision making. It's not the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning and the last thing you think of when you go to bed at night and what you think about all day long, you know? And not just think, but actually actively attempt to do, to, to, to live a, a way of life. It's very hard to explain. I use the 12-step program as an example because in dealing with my sponsees, it's very hard for them to understand what way of life means because you can't really quantify it. It's a much more qualitative thing. But I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's what you do, you know? It's what your central orientation is. It's, 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 it's the basis for your life, if you will. So the, the phrase, the way, it's terribly, terribly important to me. I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So when we, as we find Paul or Saul, because he hasn't become Paul yet, journeying <laughs> to Damascus, a light from heaven flashes about him. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rising into the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So, what's going on? Is this so? Th this you probably have heard this a few times. Are getting used to me saying, "What does this remind you of? Does this remind you of anything? <laughs> anything in the Old Testament? Oh, uh, uh, Saul. Saul. How how does it remind you of Saul? Wasn't it Saul that was you know? heard the voice and uh or have i got my name wrong it was a samuel samuel heard the voice where he like he's in the temple thank you thank you that's what i'm thinking of the samuel okay all right i'm old that's okay <laughs> i think but, samuel works in the sense that god has chosen a particular person yeah. to do work and then he summons him to do that work yeah. i think that works what else what, what else might what's what is happening to Saul here this dawned on me today when I read well, this mostly well, because I've been thinking about who we've been doing a lot of parallels actually throughout the book of Acts well the first thing that comes to mind for me is who are you Lord yeah. um, it's uh, <laughs> he he knows right it's it's yeah, he doesn't say, who are you? Right. He says, who he are you, Lord? Yep. Well, yeah. Yeah. So this, this reminds me of Moses. Oh, yeah. yeah the burning bush. The burning bush. Yep. You have, you know, take off your, your sandals for your unholy God, like the kind of like back and forth going on, mm -hmm. the light flashing, um, the fact that there's this bush that's on fire that's not being consumed in this way. Like the men uh, hear a voice, but they don't see anyone. That there's like, there are some revert, like there's a spiritual event happening and it's reverberating in the natural world, but some people can see it and experience it, but in some ways it's not like affecting the world is not the word I want to use, but uh, the other thing where it reminds me of Moses too here is the darkness of Mount Sinai that Moses goes into the dark and he doesn't eat or drink for a specific period of time. Hmm. And that Saul is now entering into the darkness and he's not going to eat or drink. Um, I also think it's, how long does this happen to us all? Three days. Three days. Ooh, I mean, come on. Yeah. Jesus. Three days. <laughs> uh, he is in the darkness. You, can, of anything. No, no. you know, the, he's, the Lord has blinded. You know, this also reminds who else has had an angelic vision who um, has a particular sense, Zachariah, when his tongue is, when he's yeah. silenced because he doesn't, um, 
Yeah. You have another of like this, uh, I wouldn't, obviously it's just not angelic, but this kind of heavenly vision because Zachariah was encountered by an angel. Um, Saul gets specifically uh, visited by Jesus. I also think this is reverberating because we just saw, read Stephen's vision of Christ enthroned with the Father um, back uh, two chapters ago. And we went back to the Son of Man uh, and that when he talks the way that, when he references, but just, you know, saying the Son of Man, that then the folks around him, you, you can tell they get incensed and they, they fall upon him. Um, the, I am sure that Saul knew, especially since he was there, that in the environs, that there was something about Stephen and his vision. And we have, now have another vision of the Lord uh, appearing. Um, is quite a, there has not been, this is as far, this is also me just realize this is the first, well, this is a similar kind of, into, I, I'm, I'm going through a few processes here. Jesus has not appeared to anyone like this. He has kind of had a similar dialogue with um, Peter where in his in the post-resurrection account where he says do you love me feed my sheep do you love me that kind of like back and forth with peter now with paul this is a another post-resurrectional obviously uh account but it's a, a heavenly vision that saul has paul saul saul paul um and there's this question why do you persecute me He's in darkness for three days. I cannot imagine what was going through his head for three days. Because this man is, as he will reflect later, uh, I believe it's in Galatians where he's kind of um, tooting his own horn about how Jewish he had been, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, this was a dedicated man. And as we know, Paul, like when he sets his mind to it and he feels like God has called him and understands that this is what he's supposed to do and this is holy work, he does it. He's mm -hmm. uh, kind of like Peter in that way. But Paul, you know, is ready to travel the whole world. He's ready to go to Damascus to, to gather up Christians. And so you have uh, him, his whole world is basically shattered. Everything that he thought he knew has now been... Um, revealed to him. This is also, it's also interesting to me that with, with Paul's conversion, it's not, it's not the witness of Christians that converts him. It's Jesus himself revealing himself to Paul. And maybe it's like, maybe throughout this, Paul's had in the back of his mind, like, am I really doing what's right? <laughs> you know, Stephen, uh, he forgives us all like that. That's, that's powerful in the face of that. And in fact, when we see later martyrdom accounts throughout uh, the early church, there's very often there's an account of uh, something uh, powerful happening uh, in the act of being killed where they forgive or they have a credible um, display, incredible freedom towards death and bravery in the face of death that then others around them go, I want to die like that. That seems like I, that God is the God that I want to worship. And then they, you know, will also get their heads cut off or freeze to death in a lake uh, like they do with the uh, 40 martyrs of Sebast, where one of them hops out and, and one of the soldiers hops in. Um, this is almost the 39 martyrs of Sebast. And he's like, no, there has to be 40. So he, he jumps in. Um, but what you get here with, uh, Paul is this God appears to him and basically tells him uh, you're going to die to yourself. You're going to spend three days in darkness and then somebody's going to tell you what to do. Those are like completely flipping that. He's, he's the one telling people to go in jail and now he's going to be uh, imprisoned in the darkness of his loss of sight. So would somebody like to read the next nine verses, 10 through 19? I just wanted to mention that, you know, he was actually writing to 
ask us in triumph. Yeah. Over the people of the way. He recognizes this great Pharisee and he had license to kill or imprison anybody from the way that he encountered. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine the least likely person on the planet at that time to become the Apostle Paul. It just, it blows me away. I just, it, it really all, underlines me. Part of the, the reason people. that I underlined the fact that it wasn't the witness of the church is, and I think this is right, like we underline a lot, the witness of the church is something uh, absolutely important to the evangelization of the world. Yes. But God is also active in doing what God's going to do. And there will be people who will come that had nothing to do with anything that we've done. And they'll say, and I've heard stories of this, like, you know, they'll go into a church or they'll have this encounter uh, where they randomly see an icon in somebody, you know, and they're like, uh, that person appeared to me <laughs> and they brought me here. Like, or the mother of God, I didn't know who she was, but it just kept nagging me and nagging me. And then I finally like looked it up or I walked into a church because somebody invited me and she has spoken to me before this, this happens um, without any of our, you know, the worker witness, we need to be here so that they they can be in craft, you know, engrafted into the church. But uh, God is doing what God's going to do. And there will be people who will be, who will, he will appear to, and they will be converted because of it. Um, so who would like to read the next nine verses? I can. Please. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. Like the first section, there's a lot going on here. We have another person named Ananias who is a disciple at Damascus. And this really reminds me of Samuel. Mm -hmm. Because this dialogue is very much like the Samuel dialogue, which is um, the Lord appearing and calling out Samuel. And he, he thinks that it's, um, oh, who's Sam who Eli. is the Eli, thank you. Uh, he thinks it's Eli saying Samuel calling out in the night, but it's actually God. And he always says, here I am Lord. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me, mostly. Well, the, the reality that Ananias just assumes like the Lord has appeared to him in a vision and like, he's ready for it. Do you know what it, that, that he is in a place that a lot of the time these visions there's folks are scared right they fall on their face they then an angel comes but in this there's a vision and uh he's ready to go he's present and he's asked to go and um find saul and he tells him that Saul is actually still, so Saul is still having visions because Saul knows that Ananias is going to come and lay his hands on him. Of course, Ananias has heard about Saul 
and um, he names the, you know his concerns. But God, I, I really am fascinated by verse 15, where God says, he's chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's especially verse 16 that kind of, you know, he's a chosen instrument. This is the same kind of language that God will talk to the, the uh, prophets that they are chosen from before their mother's womb, like Jeremiah. Um, as, well specific- as, the, uh, as, as well as the kings of Babylon and the kings of Syria. What do you mean? Something's breaking up bad. As well, I said the kings of Babylon, the kings of Syria, the kings of Persia, Cyrus, you know? Right, well, okay, I see what you're saying. That God, God, God ordained... Referred to, God referred to them as my chosen instruments you know that's that's what that's that's what struck that's what struck me what i think this again underlines um we go way back to acts two if i'm remembering correctly uh the sermon where he says that basically god has ordained that these things should happen uh and so here we are with paul he has been a chosen vessel and instrument and it's that God is going to show him that he's going to suffer now for his name, which is kind of this reversal again. The persecutor of Christians is now the one who will suffer persecution. Uh, The one who, you know, would breathe, you know, insults and murder against Christians is the one who's now going to have that uh, directed at him. And Ananias, uh, God bless Ananias. He doesn't see, he, he registers as kind of like, ah, and then he does it. Uh, he's ready to go. Uh, and so he goes and he lays hands on, again, this is, this struck me that it says brother Saul. Do you all recall in the past few chapters, any kind of language of referring to somebody as brother, such and such, and not been at like a Baptist church or something? No, I don't think so. I think this is another place of the first time in acts where they, where Ananias not only has he obeyed God, but he's reconciled himself to something that he's never actually encountered or seen. And he's going to encounter Saul and call him brother. Um, I think the way is showing itself here that Ananias uh, is already his enemy. Uh, Obviously, I mean, God has appeared to him. So he feels pretty legitimate in <laughs> what God has said to him. Uh, but I think there's our, the, the faith of Ananias here uh, that he is going to, you know, Christians in Damascus, if they had heard that Saul was coming, they're probably hiding themselves or uh, making themselves scarce. And Ananias is actually going to go knock on the door and figure out where he is and um, heal him. <clears throat> So what, what happens to Paul or Saul? He, the scales fall from his eyes. He regains his sight and he rises and he's baptized and he took food and was strengthened. What have you all thought about the scales falling from his eyes? Uh, it reminds me a little, I mean, when I think of scales, I think of snakes. I think um, of fish. A fish. Maybe Reed has just arrived so he can help us understand why scales fell from Paul's eyes. To put you on the spot there, Reed. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. <laughs> now answer my question. I'll <laughs> teach you to be late. Um, I was pondering over that earlier, and... Um, I was thinking mostly, well, this has become, of course, a, an idiom, you know, the, fa- the scales fell from my eyes. Right. Um, but I don't know. It's so different from when um, he comes across, is his name, Elymas, um, when he's preaching uh, the gospel to someone on Crete, was it? Uh-huh. Or, and uh, Elymas, the sorcerer, who just, he's kind of lost and missed and so he's blind, but it's a different kind of blindness. So I don't know. 
it's a, it, it's it's fascinating the the physicality of it yeah um, is what strikes me um kind of you know the tradition about the blind man in the gospel is that jesus uh actually creates eyeballs out of the dirt when he is healing because he's born blind as in he literally has no eyeballs um that's another thing with like sight and physicality that i can think of in scripture um i also think of um oh naaman right the syrian and that he goes and he's baptized and immediately you know like his skin is refreshed um but no there's nothing that really remind and i bet because my like if there's a weak spot in scripture for me it's some of the uh, major prophets mostly because i always just read a few chapters i'm just like i have no idea what's going on Um, (laughs) maybe there's something there that i've missed um this this is kind of uh not quite eyes this is more with heart but this actually kind of reminds me of ezekiel uh where remove heart of stone turn it into a heart of flesh uh it's just kind of that the encounter with god turns malfunction into function or uh, disorder into order uh yeah yeah i that that also that ezekiel is a is a uh, echo of deuteronomy and early, the kind of stiff-necked uh that way stephen preaches like stiff-necked and hard you know uncircumcised apart um it's just fascinating it's eyes maybe it has something to do with like that he watched stephen be stoned that there was something about his kind of like presence to what has happened i don't know i, just, I find it interesting hmm. um i'm I was also just searching to... go ahead i was go just ahead. searching on eyes uh and where the reference in the bible and just found uh from isaiah chapter two the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low the lord alone will be exalted in that day if I was a church father, I would probably use that in my commentary. I'm sure someone would read that. <laughs> that sounds exactly how they would read something like that and be like, well, I know what uh, where that was fulfilled. It's Paul. Um, yeah. But the fact, the, the I still think, Reed, you, you missed this, and maybe this, that there's some kind of mosaic experience that's happening to him where he is taken, he's called out, he's chosen almost like a burning bush encounter. Then he's taken up the mountain. I mean, this is later on, obviously, in Moses's life, um, into the darkness of God for a specific period of time without food and drink. Um, And now this is also kind of his own uh, spiritual death with Christ and resurrection with Christ in a way too, three days in darkness, and then he's brought into the light and then baptized. I don't know, maybe some of y'all will um, encounter something else or think of something else. Does anyone have any other comments about Ananias or uh, Saul, Paul? It reminds me a little bit of the road to Emmaus. Where there's a kind of darkness and then they, um, I mean, spiritual darkness, they don't understand who they're really with and then there's a, a unveiling of who. Yeah, but compared to, the, compared to the, the healing of the blind man at the pool, where as you say Jesus actually made eyes. The blind man at the pool had no vision. Yeah. These people have got vision, but it is obscured. Right, and there's something off. The disciples of the road to Emmaus. David froze. He's got the vision, and he's got all the knowledge of a Pharisee, but he can't really see Right. what, what, what it means. Which reminds me later in Corinthians where he talks about how in the synagogue they they can't their their vision is veiled they can't actually see Christ in the mosaic and the scriptures. Uh, Erica, is that you raising your hand? It is. Uh, I'm actually uh, I have a chrysostom uh, here. Um, please, please bring the golden mouth. <laughs> um. So it's the question of why did he not blind his eyes entirely? Uh, This was more wonderful that with his eyes opened, he did not see. And then it refers back to verse eight, uh, which was just his case in respect to the law until the name of Jesus was put on him. 
So a kind of, in a sim, like the way Paul talks later is uh, Chrysostom is kind of seeing that in his own life. Um, I also, we've, been, we've talked about that we have Ananias. Um, he lays his hands on him so that he can regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he's baptized. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I, I made some comments earlier in our study of Acts uh, that I think are, are valid, but I think if we try to, I don't want to get ourselves in a logical game of like, so this must mean that he was, that he had his hands laid on him and then he received the Holy Spirit and then he was baptized. Like that's backwards. Or um, I think we just go with the spirit of what's <laughs> being written because I don't, the, the writer of Acts is not giving us a handbook about how to initiate others into Christianity here. Uh, he's recounting the basic story of what, what has happened, which is Ananias encountered Paul he laid hands on him, healed him, and he was baptized and received the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, there, there is another place in Acts where yes. um, there are those who they receive the Holy Spirit and the apostles say, well, how can we withhold baptism from them because God has preempted us or you know, we've, we got to catch up to where God is. Um, but there's a, um, there's a normative way of doing things. However, what does also come out in the book of Acts is God isn't bound. He can, God can do things the way he wants to, but when you look at the exceptions or you look at the ways that are outside the norm, like the, the people who want to do a deathbed confession or some such, well, St. Dismas was never baptized. Um, he was the first into paradise, but he did it by way of a literal cross. I mean, do you really want to be the exception <laughs> or right? And, that, and that's also reflected in the fact that the early church saw martyrs who had never been baptized, that their martyrdom was their baptism. Right. They were, their baptism was in their own blood. Um, right. And so to this day, a, a lay person can, bab if, a, if a child is born or somebody you're out in the, you know, the desert and some, your, you know, buddy, if you were in Kuwait or something in the early nineties and your right. buddy's dying and, they want to be baptized. You can take a little bit of water out of your canteen and baptize in the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit. Um, right. And that's considered a valid baptism. And if they survived and then they came into the, to the church later, uh, the, the priest would uh, only chrismate. He wouldn't like right. baptize again because it's been accepted. You know, that right. was the baptism that occurred with that little bit of water in the desert. Yeah. Uh, but again, uh, it's fascinating because even canonically the in the way, right in the mind of the church, way. they understand these. The, it's not like there's this rigidity. There is an right. un, there's a spiritual understanding here that has always yeah. been refreshing to me because I did not grow up with that kind of uh, wisdom. I'll just say that mm. I grew up with a very much a, a rigidity. It's like, well, oops, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you well, you those... Enjoy the fire. <laughs> One of the very first conversations I had with Father Stephen, uh, he said, you cannot say where the Holy Spirit is not. Uh, and I think that that's very pertinent to this discussion of like, yes, there is a normative way, but God works how God works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of uh, this chapter is underlining how we need to be aware and honor where there's places um, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, know something and think like that just dis disrupts everything. Just know that God is God and you are yeah. you and that's okay. You don't have to sort everything out. Thank God. Cause yeah. I don't want to sort it. Literally. Out. Yeah. <laughs> um, if God in a normative way, I don't know that he would have chosen Saul as the great apostle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep reading here. Uh, who would like to read, um, this next section down to, um, let's go ahead and get to 31. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known. Hold to on, hold on. Actually, you need to start up in verse 19. Uh, Saul preaches in Damascus for oh, several I'm, days. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, all right. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus? Yes. 
Okay, and in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And he's come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem and preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, uh, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brethren knew it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. So now um, Saul has fallen into a pattern that we've encountered uh, already in the book of Acts uh, in a few spots. Uh, we have a brave disciple uh, and convert who goes and preaches Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, uh, that he is the Messiah, that he has fulfilled the promises to Israel. And the Jews around them, specific Jews, some of them, of course, are um, converted, but others of them are, as it says here, confounded and made upset. And then they plot to kill him. And Saul escapes. It's fascinating already in verse 25 that it says his disciples, that Saul already in this short period, I can't look the force of character or like, I, I imagine Paul as being, you know, Peter being very kind of um, to the point and always kind of at the front of things, but Paul being this, this kind of character that people want to follow. Mm -hmm. Uh in a different way than Peter. My guess is that he was charismatic. Um, not overly so because there's in places where Paul also kind of takes up that kind of um, mosaic uh, theme of, I can't really do, you know, I'm not really a public speaker. Uh, I shouldn't really do something like this. Um, but I, I have a feeling that Paul, uh, if he's confounding the Jews in arguments and he's also, sparring with the Hellenists, disputing with the Hellenists uh, in the same way that Stephen was. Um, Paul was probably a pretty uh, strong character here who knew his stuff. I mean, he'd been a uh, disciple of uh, Rabbi Gamaliel. So he would have been a very well-educated, um, broadly educated and trained uh, rabbi, basically, before this point. Maybe he hadn't qualified for that particular office, but there's something obviously about Saul. I think the word proving in verse 22 is significant. It is, so. it is for me anyway, because what it tells me that he was already doing what he does so much in his letters is going through the Old Testament and proving on the basis of what's written in the Old Testament that Jesus must be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there was a lot of rational argument going on here. It's fascinating that he's that quick. To, yeah. Uh, there's something kind of like, uh, this makes me think back to your comment about the, uh, the uh, similarity to the road to Emmaus, where Christ uh, propounds, uh, expl ex explicates, I'll find a verb that I actually want, or that's a real verb, uh, <laughs> to uh, the disciples on the road to, to Luke and Cleopas about how he's the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, so Paul here is obviously a quick read or a quick study. Slash, my guess is, like I was saying, that there's something about him that he probably was already kind of wondering what was going on. And that there he's having probably some doubts or there's some, something 
about probably the witness of Stephen even that threw him off such that um, when there's something about, and this is how a lot of us learn where we fill in certain places and then all of a sudden something falls. I mean, we talk about this, like a light bulb goes off or or all things fall into place and suddenly we have insight. We even use the language of like vision that we see something now because it, it's like one person can say one thing and all of a sudden it goes click and then do, 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 do. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of what it seems like uh, happened with Paul. Um, when we going through his mind on the road to Damascus. Yeah, I, I think I think we have somebody who is struggling. Yeah, but after the experience with Stephen, he's on the road to Damascus and he's all charged up, but he's really trying. He was an intellectually honest person. And he was really trying to put pieces together. But but it's also something that goes beyond intellect. That yeah, and and that too comes about or comes through in the road to Emmaus and the road to Damascus and all the other is um, to tie it together and to see Jesus in that. It has to be revealed. It's not immediately self-evident. But this could fall together so quickly for Saul because he already knew the scriptures in and out. He could quote it. He So all, all the pieces were there. It just needed, the kaleidoscope needed the right shake to then be able to, to see Christ in that. Um, but it's not like he needed to start off, okay, in the beginning God created and then read the whole thing. He already had that bit inside. He had already meditated on all of that. He knew it by heart. Um, and so then once, uh, once the light came on, if you will, then it was, it was fully on. He, the connections were already, everything was there. All the connections. Exactly. It's not like the dominoes had to be set up. The dominoes were already there yep. and in place. Um, Go ahead. I often thought about the scales falling off uh, prior to the discussion tonight in a, in a sense, not only a physical, but spiritual as well. And in his heart, um, you know, I, I think back to, to Jonah being in the, in the belly of the well for three days. Mm-hmm. What did he do in those three days? He prayed. And what was Paul doing during the three days of his darkness? He was praying. And when, when the scales fall, I think that is a very physical thing, but it also is symbolic of, of what you're talking about, the, the, the pieces coming together at that point, that he could put those things together because he was willing to humble himself uh, in those three days before mm-hmm. the Lord. Yeah, it's fascinating just the different ways we've seen in the book of Acts how people are converted Paul, it took Jesus saying, uh, hey, Paul, (laughs) uh, I'm going to have to show myself to you. Um, With others, like what Paul immediately goes to, he spends some time with the disciples. And then, as it says in verse 20, immediately he goes and starts proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I think it's with Paul, we see... uh, the complex of how some people are converted and it requires God, you know, having to explicitly manifest himself with others. There's that same kind of like with the acts two, there's the same kind of pricking of the heart in the same way that when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Um, there's a kind of, um, you're the one of the ones who it's almost the same uh, language of uh, Peter telling them the one you crucified is the Christ. Like there's guilt on your doorstep. And Jesus speaks the same way to Paul, Saul, Paul. I want to kind of keep saying Saul because we haven't got to Paul yet. Um, And that I'm trying to get to, the reality of the role that guilt can play in our spiritual life and conversion to Jesus Christ of, I think there is something 
the, about what Paul's uh, wake-up call is already tied to, as we've been saying, what he witnessed in Stephen and what he, I mean, I'm sure he has these images of Christians that he's drug out in the middle of the night from their beds and from their homes uh, and basically handed them over to be killed and put in, put into prison or, you know, et cetera. So there's something about Paul's heart. There's the intellectual component. There's this kind of uh, honesty, God's intervention. But I think there's also a play here, just good old fashioned guilt uh, that then he realizes the way forward out of this is that the God who's going to, he's going to have that physical darkness to confirm the process that he needs to die to his old self in order to be resurrected and how this becomes the crux of all of Paul's thought. Um, I would, it's, this is going to be a little specific, but it's not justification by faith as much as this is, is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the actual full content of what Paul is going to preach later. Uh, and the full ramifications of that. Um, what do you all make uh, Saul in Jerusalem, 26 to 30? I know we're going over a little bit, but I hope you all are all right with a few more, just a few more minutes beyond the. Uh, you hour. know, if you've been killing people, it's hard to get people to trust you. <laughs> yeah, it's I have this brave. Yeah. It's almost amusing about the way he walks into Jerusalem, and nobody wants to have anything to do with him. Yeah, and he he needs to he needs to convince somebody to convince somebody to. Mm-hmm. Is there another place in Scripture that talks about this? You can watch me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to get too far afield here, but. There's a fascinating mm-hmm. gap of time that Acts does not talk about. Then after 14 years, this is Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along, and I went up by revelation. And I laid before them, but privately before those who are of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest so somehow I should be running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so you go through and there's a lot of, uh, then we go, let's just go down to verse nine. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. This has caused all sorts of fascinating uh, debate. (laughs) How do you synthesize uh, these accounts. Is there a 14-year gap here in Acts, uh, or is um, there something, uh, how should I say this, that has to be synthesized somehow, because it's obvious what's going on here. You have Barnabas present, and it, it, this shows you um, that Luke has a very specific story that he's telling, Uh because I know there's some argument that would also say that what was happening there is something that happens later in Paul's ministry too. Uh, but it seems like this could be the exact same episode excised without all of the, the detail. Um, but you have a struggle and this, I guess all of this to kind of underline that there was Paul's being brought into the church was not just a simple, like, Oh yeah, cool. There's another, uh, a pot, somebody who's been chosen in order to do this. There was a struggle um, that Galatians also captures between him and Peter and what exactly the mission to the Gentiles is supposed to be. Here we've already read in this chapter that Paul has been chosen to be a vessel before the Gentiles, right? That's what's uh, underlined to Ananias uh, from God. Um, but you have here, I think you also see how the church realistically struggles uh, with humans (laughs) within the fellowship, that the church is full uh, as much as it is um, 
the divine, divinely established and guided body uh, and vessel for salvation, there's still a working out within the ranks of the church as to how exactly things are going to happen. I partly say this because uh, if you've been Orthodox long enough, you realize that uh, the Orthodox church and the bonds of fellowship and communion between the various synods uh, is something that has to be kind of jealously guarded and done with humility and love, or there can be a break in communion, uh, or there can be problems because not everybody sees things the same way or because there's, um, you know, here in, in Acts, it has, you know, he, they, he attempts to join them and they're like, aren't you the guy who killed a bunch of people? I, I, I don't know about this. Uh, but it takes Barnabas, of course, good old Barnabas, uh, who I've grown to really like from our study here, uh, the Cretan, uh, who gets to uh, basically reconcile. And this is, this, to me, and kind of even bringing up all that, is that there is hope even when it seems like there's divisiveness or uh, lack of unity within the church on particular things. I mean, there's always the, the, the sacraments that are shared, but, you know, the church is full of people and people have different ideas or convictions. And I don't mean that in the sense of like dogmatic things or those things. I just mean, we should approach this issue like this. And somebody else says, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? And, you know, my my mom donated that money for that thing back there or whatever, you know, uh, there's just all sorts of like from the, you know, mundane to, you know, how exactly one articulates, you know, our discussion about the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit uh, can that I, according to scripture, you know, that is working in the world and there might be we might encounter a place where we say, I don't know how to wrap my head around this exactly, but God is obviously working in that person mm -hmm. and they're not orthodox. Well, I kind of want to say, welcome to reality. <laughs> uh, like, if we, we're not sectarian, and I don't think the early church was, as evidenced by what we're reading here. Um, but things are going to take time. Uh, things uh, might even, you know, some folks might even repose, and there isn't healings in those things, <coughs> uh, divisions or disputes. Um, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, St. Cyril and St. John Chrysostom basically really, really, really did not like each other. And they basically died without reconciling themselves to each other. Do we commemorate both of them as saints? Right. Is that complicated? <laughs> Is that reality? Yeah. I guess people on audio can't see me shaking my head yes through all of this. But, um, I, I just, there are these times, just being realistic, it's something that I've appreciated that Father Stephen has laid the groundwork here at St. Anne's of just being, because you can sell orthodoxy as this kind of like, come join us and you'll like, theosis will occur and, you know, X, Y, and Z and like, and you're trying to like, we have skeletons in our closet too. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to talk about, I would rather just be completely. Yeah. We fight like a family. Welcome to the body of Christ. <laughs> uh, like Peter and Paul. That's why we have, it's part of the, like the feast day and those icons that they're, they're embracing because they're embracing because they weren't embracing beforehand. <laughs> there was problems. So if Peter and Paul, the chief of the apostles can, um, agree to go their separate ways or that they need to kind of uh, uh, figure things out differently that I think that gives us hope and an understanding of dealing with the complexity that we can encounter in the church. That's what I'm basically trying to say. Got me thinking about the Ukraine father. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear you. So what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh oh, I'm sure that won't take us a bit far afield. Yes, let's just let's cover <laughs> you that. You know, when you open a can of worms, the first thing you have to do is find a bigger can to put them back in. Yeah, Ukraine. Exactly. Ukraine is a very big can of worms. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, folks, if anybody who doesn't know anything about orthodoxy is listening to this, like, what are they talking about? I was like, don't mm -hmm. worry about it right now. Um, 
Well, no, I only mentioned it because you were talking about divisions. Yeah. I mean, there, and here's the reality. There have been multiple times in church history. Yeah. I'm talking third, fourth, fifth century. And there's a reason why Greg the Theologian said that he didn't like synodal meetings <laughs> and uh, wanted to run away and just write poetry. Um, because uh, when we look at some of the great uh, exemplars of the faith, we can kind of like, oh, wouldn't it have been great to be in the fourth century? No, it wouldn't have been. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there would have been division all over the place. Yeah. So let's let's thank God that we have the particular problems that we have, and we have St. Anne's to at least find some refuge that we, you know, we have relative peace. Uh, thank God. Yeah. By relative peace, I mean we we have peace. <clears throat> I think in verse thirty-one we um, see a kind of completion of what we've been seeing previously. So the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, there's a, there's a kind of restoring of Israel here, yeah. um, of ancient Israel that had been fractured because of the fighting and idolatry. Uh, but now it's Judea, Galilee, and Samaria have are all together. Peace has been built up and they're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is multiplied. This goes back to that, that same framework that I was talking about of, Stephen and of Peter, they go, they preach, they stir it up, uh, but then the brethren uh, rejoice uh, in what has occurred because great wonders, uh, miracles, peace, uh, the church thrives and grows. So actually, I think because of time, I think we should stop here with Aeneas, because um, I would like to talk about uh, Tabitha or Dorcas, which now is an unfortunate name, but... Um, <laughs> I think we we can reserve that for the next time. All Thank those in favor, know. aye. <laughs> Sounds I'm good. making a fiat aye. decision. We're going to stop. <laughs> so, does anyone have any last comments or anything about this section of Saul and his conversion? No, just thank you, Father. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. I will see you all next week. Uh, through the screen and I'm sure I'll see some of you all uh, in person at some point. Thank you, Father Daniel. Oh, thank, thank you all. You. Thank all you. right, Good everyone. Night. I guess I should Good go night. ahead and stop the recording thing. Here, <laughs> 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 Good night, boy. It's getting to be like Good, Good night, night, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs>